The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. For the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at concentration, this part of the practice that uh, often we have a difficult relationship with, partly because we it's so easy to judge ourselves according to how well we think we do at concentration, like whether we can quiet the mind. And in a way we do, you know, it is appropriate to see it as a skill and that some people are better at it maybe than others, or I used to be worse at it, now I'm better at it. Really, I think the heart of being a a skillful human being is to have some sense of the skills worth having and then putting in the time, like having a long-range picture view of things, and putting the time to develop the skills that are worth having. So what are the skills worth having? Well, one of them is being able to take care of the mind in a very direct, immediate way. And we all know from our own experience that some of the ways we take care of the mind, you know, we feed it certain things like some media, and it doesn't really help the mind at all. But superficially, we think we're taking care of the mind. You know, it's like... an angry child who's demanding this or that, you know, they want to play with their keys and then they want to play with their cell phone, you know, and then our computer, you know, all the things that children aren't supposed to play with, but, you know, they're really screaming. Well, it's you're not being a good parent if you give in to the child because they scream or hold their breath or do this or that. And that's often the level that we're taking care of the mind. You know, it's sort of the mind complains and then we give it what it wants. It says, I'm hungry, I'm bored, I'm angry, I'm needy, I'm this, I'm that. And we just keep feeding it. And it quiets down a little when we give it what it wants, but then it wants more. You know, it's it's that kind of a monster. And it's really good to see this about our mind and not to judge it, but just to understand that. And then the question is, are we willing to be the adult in the room? You know, that can say, I know you want this. I know you think you want this. But maybe try this other thing. You know, we do this. Good parents do this with their children or with our friends when they're acting like children, or with ourselves when we're acting like a child. I'll make a deal with you, you know. You sit this morning and meditate, and you can do whatever you want the rest of the day, or something like that. Because we know that when we sit, that what we're going to want is going to be different than when we don't sit. It's like we can actually trust what we want, because the mind's more in balance. 
sitting, real sitting practice as a way of extinguishing the neurotic tendencies of the mind. That's the whole point. Just on the very basic level of meditation practice, the part of meditation practice that emphasizes calm and tranquility, which hopefully then is used for the deepening of insight. But even on that level of just being able to calm, balance, steady the mind, some it uh, suppresses, that tranquility suppresses neurotic activity. And so we're just, the day goes better, just on that most basic level. I often kid, I'm sure many of you have heard me say this, that this is something we should be training children starting somewhere around four or five every day, every year. Some of you, I'm sure, have read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, I think it's called, where he looks at the experts in different fields and finds sort of a surprising... uh, correlation about how much time the person who's a real expert in a particular field has spent to become an expert. And I think the the general conclusion is about 10,000 hours. If you do something, a specific thing, for 10,000 hours, you get pretty good at it. So just to put that in perspective, because, you know, we're not very good with big numbers, that's one hour a day, for 27 years. Okay? That's a real commitment. A whole hour, not like, no, a whole hour every day of the year for 27 years. And uh, now imagine if we've done that with certain things, brushing our teeth, we'd be really good. Or taking care of our body, listening and deciding what foods work well with our body, or calming the mind, learning how to be interested in the mind, the activity of the mind itself. We get really skilled at it if we really applied ourselves to it, or any action, any activity rather, any craft, any skill. And like most skills, you know, we don't expect a skill to, like, to gain a skill immediately. I mean, maybe we do, but then we're deluded, you know, that we've done something a few times, and I always kid my wife, Wynn, about, she's a choreographer, and how she never casts me in any of her dances. (laughs) I always tell her how fresh I am at modern dance, because I haven't really done it. (laughs) And it's like this in a lot of places in life, where we maybe know a little bit and we want to be an expert instead of doing the day-in, day-out work that really leads to us knowing something about dance or about meditation. In this book he goes on, he talks about different people like, you know, that you assume just knew what they were doing right from the beginning. Like the story of Bill Gates who started Microsoft and some of you might remember he was like, I think he dropped out of college and in some garage, you know, started doing this. And people think, well, God, he was young. You know, he must have been just brilliant. But 
when you do when people have done research into his life, it's like in eighth grade he went to this elite private school. They in 1968 they got a computer. You know, computers like most colleges didn't have back then, but this high school did. And starting in eighth grade, he started programming. And then as a teenager, instead of you know, doing what most teenagers did, he and his friend would sneak out at night and go to the University of Washington to play with the computer. They had somehow some in to the computer lab at the university. And this is when they were in high school. So they got their hours in. And there, he lists many other examples, evidently, in this book. So, and the, you know, you hear this, and then we go, well, you know, we start doing the math. I'm this old... <laughs> One hour, 27 years, I'm not going to do it. And then we, we just want to give up. because, But you see, it still makes sense to put in the time. In fact, whether or not, you know, I don't have any proof, and I'm assuming nobody in the room has any proof about past lives, future lives, <clears throat> but it is skillful to have an open mind about the continuity of the mind, not to assume that the body, the physical body, and the mind are on the same trajectory. It doesn't seem like that to me. I mean, that much from my own direct experience doesn't seem like the trajectory of the body and the trajectory of the mind is the same. I mean, there's some correlation clearly between how the body's doing and how the mind's doing, but it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. And you can have people whose mind is just like in great shape, but the body isn't. Or somebody whose mind doesn't seem to be doing well, but the body seems strong and healthy. So, the nice thing about having that open mind about what's going to happen with this mind is, then we're willing to put in good work, because it's good work. And the thing about this training is the benefits aren't just later. There are benefits that come later after 27 years of putting an hour in a day. Or you could go do a lot of retreat practice, then it wouldn't be 27 years. You know, some retreats, if you're doing um, some of the more intensive retreats, you're putting in, you know, 10, 15 hours a day of practice. So that would add up. But in any case, you're just willing to do it because it's the right thing to do. And if we develop a way of understanding this activity we call meditation, you'll see immediately the benefit. So it's like, and that's actually the appropriate barometer. Like, how else are we going to keep ourselves at it if we don't come alive, if we don't feel good doing it? Now, that doesn't mean meditation always feels good, but when we're practicing properly, even the meditations that are all about opening to something that's really painful or really difficult to bear, there's something that feels really right about the opening. Even if what we're opening to is really confusing or unpleasant. Do you know that distinction? It's like, it hurts good. <laughs> you know, we have some cliches we even use in our culture about that, that some things feel good doing them even though it's painful to do it. But somehow the mind knows, intuits, it's good. 
something good is being set in motion, something good is being developed. The mind, the heart, the body, it's moving in the direction that's good. I trust. I feel the benefit. And that's another reason why it's nice to have a a kind of a spacious place, even if we're not able to sit for an hour or even a half an hour, but to not just rush off after a sit, but just to have a sense of what kind of medicine that just was. What has that set in motion? What's happening? Right? Because the way the Buddha taught, it's all about cause and effect. So when we take 30 minutes or 45 minutes to train the mind to set something in motion, then we want to check and see, well, what actually did we set in motion? How does that feel? What does that taste like? Do I trust what's been set in motion? I mean, we could do this. It would be wonderful to do this, like if we spent an hour watching a stupid television program and we shut it off at the end. It would be great in a spacious, clear way to taste what's been set in motion. Like, how does that taste? How does this feel? Have you just done that? You know, or, you know, maybe back in the day, or maybe this is the day for you, you know, when you party, go out and party, and then check, okay, how does that feel? Or do social activities that don't feel great afterward, you know, well, how was that? What flavor is left in the mind? What qualities of this mind, tendencies of this mind, were reinforced just then, in that activity? And is that the kind of heart I want to set in motion? So think about this time we set aside every day as a time to set in motion a mind and heart that we really want to set in motion, or qualities of the mind and heart that we really want to set in motion. So most of you know we've been talking about the seven factors of awakening as one list the Buddha used quite often about the qualities that a wise person would want to set in motion, bring into balance. So mindfulness, the governing factor, keeping the present moment in mind, not forgetting how it is, and in particular, because there are many things we could be mindful of, but all the things we're mindful of, like mindful of movement, mindful of breathing in, they're really training the mind to be mindful of the mind itself, the activity of the mind, and the nature, even more subtly, what the nature of the mind is, which we tend, because it's subtle, the nature of the mind is subtle, and because culturally, maybe even as a species, we have such an external orientation toward what we see, what we hear, what we think, what we touch, what we smell, what we taste, that it takes a lot of training to train the mind to be interested in a continuous way in the nature of the mind itself, to be interested in the nature of the mind itself. And not in a philosophical way, where we're thinking about what the mind is. Because that would be one approach. But the fact is, the mind, this is the mind, I guess we could say, right? Like whatever people think about when they're thinking about the mind, that thing they're thinking about 
is this, right? Because this is our mind, this experience right here. Everything we do and experience is through the mind. So we can use that sensitive thing we call the mind to know itself. This is what it's like to have a mind. Now you see it's a little subtle and you even feel a little self-conscious at first. So what we tend to do to make that mind reflecting on the mind more easily is we calm down. Because the thing about calming down tranquility and concentration is it, it temporarily nullifies the biggest addiction our mind has, which is we're addicted to interesting, pleasant, dramatic, intense sense experience. That's what our mind gravitates, the attention or the sensitivity of the mind, it gravitates towards what's intense, intensely pleasant, intensely scary. And so tranquility and concentration, these two factors of, you know, the seven. So we have mindfulness, investigation, energy, rapture. Those are the three energizing, investigation, energy, rapture. And then the three tranquilizing, so tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. Now, the three, especially the first two, tranquility and concentration, it's, it's like... A, uh, immunity of greed for greed. The strong force of the habit of mind is to want something, want something interesting, to do something. I want to do something. That's what that's sort of the animal level of our brain. That we share this tendency with all animals. Just keep doing because the doing is what helps us survive. We keep looking, and I might learn something. I might learn like there's water over here or there's food over there or danger over in this other place. And so I, I learn how to negotiate the conditions, the external conditions of my life just by keep doing things. And so what we do with, uh, to develop tranquility is the mind begins to attune to its own inner well-being, an inner happiness. And when that develops in a, strong and st a stronger and stronger way, then it begins to undercut the cause for greed, the cause for this restless looking and doing, which is, I want to be happy. I want to feel good. So when we're feeling really good in this inner sense, I don't need to go out to sense experience, interesting, intense sense experience. I'm happy, the mind is happy within itself. So it begins to be more tranquil and eventually we'll have stillness. Stillness, that's the word stillness is a good word for concentration because it's, it sort of uh, connotes the an actual characteristic of the mind. There's something in the mind that's not moving. And the part in the mind that's not moving, it's not that the mind isn't aware, right? Concentration is not a dull state of mind. 
or a sleepy state of mind. It's a hyper-illuminated, uh, bright state of mind. But something is still. The neurotic, restless, wanting to do, wanting to find, wanting to get rid of, that part of the mind becomes more and more still. That's the very definition of concentration. And that's what we feel viscerally in the body even, but especially in the mind and heart. There's a sense of like solidity, like the mind, the body, the heart doesn't need to, doesn't want to move. And you could call it contentedness, or stability, steadiness, those are good words too for concentration. Because something feels very steady, solid even. And it's funny, normally, you know, things are very refined, so very light, not heavy. So when we say solid, we don't mean heavy, but like not needing to move. And that kind of mind. That's what non-desire, non-craving feels like in the body and mind. Still, or silent, or spacious, like space without the activity in the space. There's always space, but we never notice space. Why? Because there's always so much activity. For these two weeks, I'm staying out at the uh, Common Grounds Retreat property that we brought last October. We're doing our first fall practice period now that we've set up the property well enough. Hopefully some of you will get out there. We'll do one in March and another practice period in July. And right now we only have five bedrooms, so the number of people who can come out is limited. But uh, part of being in this very quiet place in the country is uh, the feeling of stillness and space and quiet. It's so palatable. You know, you're just sitting there and there's nothing to do. <laughs> you know, it's a very nice place, but there's not a lot to do there. You know, we're, and we're not doing too much reading, a little bit of study maybe. There's no media. There's a little work to keep the place up. So as soon as you sit down, the, the mind notices the absence of city energy, right? the absence of human, neurotic, doing this, doing that, entertainments and fears. And, and the mind notices that absence. And we call that tranquility into stillness, the stillness of concentration. Now, a lot of times when we think about concentration, we think about fixing our mind on something very specific. And, <coughs> excuse me, certainly that is a kind <coughs> of concentration. That kind of concentration depends on <coughs> greed or aversion in the mind. I really want to focus in on this, or don't disturb me. I don't want to blow this. I really need to stay focused. So we're looking for a different kind of concentration that has a more open, full, unobstructed, unfixed quality to it. 
So it's more like a settling. I don't know if I mentioned this last Wednesday, but um, <clears throat> one thing our kids do in the children's program is they make these jars and they put sediment in some water and they put a lid on, they shake it up and they watch all that muddy water and they meditate on it and you know, eventually the sediment takes a while, five minutes at least, but the sediment eventually settles down. And it's not that like really wanting the sediment to settle down and, to, and the water to clear up, that strong desire or the fear that the water isn't going to clear, neither the fear nor the craving supports the clarity, the water becoming clear. But just letting it happen. So this is, you know, when we take up a particular meditation object, like the, the breath and the body, or some people work more generally with the sensations of the body sitting, some people work with hearing as a primary meditation anchor, some people do loving-kindness or compassion, uh, reflection as a main anchor for their meditation. So when you use a particular focus or meditation object, the idea isn't to focus or to use greed or aversion, I better stick to the breath. It's more you take up that training place feeling the breath at the nostrils or feeling the breath as a movement of the abdominal wall, expanding with the in-breath, contracting as the out-breath. You're using it as a natural place for the energy of the mind to settle. Honey, why not just know this next in-breath? Honey, why not know the next out-breath? Sure, you could plan. Sure, you could worry about your to-do list. Sure, you could think about your relationship or global warming. But why not just do this now? Let's just train doing just this one thing, knowing this one thing. And then as you're, you connect, you can realize that everything else is still there. So even though I'm knowing something relatively specific, right? because some people use the tip of their nostrils to feel the breath, it's a classic place. It's not the only way. There's many ways to be aware of the breath, of course. So even though, in a sense, it's a very small object, given all the things the knowing mind could know, but remember, as I'm knowing that touching breath going in, that doesn't mean I'm trying to not know anything else. I don't have to squeeze anything about the world out. That's unnecessary neurotic energy. We don't need to push anything away. We use that touching, or feeling the breath in the belly, that movement of the abdominal wall, as a place for gathering the mind, unifying the mind. Just let everything else happen in the background. Don't worry if the mind attends to other things. Just make sure it remains interested in the training ground itself. Without pushing away the other stuff, right? I can be interested in these sensations or literally it's the practice of not forgetting that this touching is being known, right? The air is coming in or going out, that's a touching, that air touching the nostrils. So I can be aware of this place, the sensations here, even that moment between the in and out breath, there's still this place being felt, 
it's just not very interesting or not very uh, loud, the sensations, you know, it's very subtle feeling this when there's no air touching it. But I'm just aware of it, remembering it, keeping it in mind without squeezing anything else off. The whole world, the whole body, everything else is right there. Breathing in. But <clears throat> what this particular training ground is doing and why a lot of meditators like to use an anchor <coughs> is it's creating a safe place for the attention of the mind to gather. It's basically we're teaching the mind or reteaching the mind that you don't have to go out and react to different experiences that you're aware of right now. Having a memory and then reacting to the memory having a sensation in the knee and reacting to the sensation. I don't like that pain in my knee. Why is my knee hurting? Having some, hearing some sound and reacting to it. What is that sound? So we're using the training object like the breath to remind the mind that it can be close, that it can keep the present moment in mind and it doesn't need to react. It doesn't need to do anything about what it's keeping in mind that it can be intimate, fully present, not forgetting, without adding anything on top of that. Just that's enough. And what begins to happen, it's in the not doing of all that other stuff that shakes up all the sediment, that the mind begins to notice, just to say it in a simple way, how beautiful the mind is. Now, most of us, an ordinary human being, won't necessarily know that that's the case. I mean, that's, that's actually one way to distinguish people who have been developing the practice for a while and people who haven't been working with their mind, their heart in a direct, ongoing way, is that people who've been practicing for a while know that there's something incredibly beautiful healing, and it's already here. And it's just obscured by the habits of my mind to get involved in all the thises and thats, including what I'm thinking. So it's not just all you guys that I'm thinking about or reacting to and sounds and sights, but I'm also reacting to all my thoughts about things and emotions about things. So in a Buddhist context, that's also the external world, my thoughts my sights, my sound, the sounds I hear, the touches I touch, and, my, and the reactions to all that. So that keeps us occupied so thoroughly that we're mostly unaware of an inherent beauty, fullness, happiness of the mind and heart. And even if we stumble upon it accidentally, which happens for everybody, we generally um, correlate it with some external event. Like you're walking in the woods, it's a beautiful day, and the mind settles, and this really beautiful, deep sense of happiness and contentedness arises. But because we're not paying close attention, we just assume, I really love walking in these woods. And we correlate that that happiness happened not because the heart is essentially pure and happy in its nature, but because 
I was the place I'd like to be. I got what I wanted. I was in the woods. Right? So we often do it that way, and that's how we misread our own experience. So the nice thing about developing meditation is we see very clearly that when the mind puts aside its neurotic activity long enough, it begins to intuit something that's always been true, but been missed over day after day, year after year. And then if we stick with it enough and really look at the causes for the developing of concentration so that we get skill, this is like that skill that takes 10,000 hours, then we can find our way back there most times we choose to. And eventually, you don't even need an hour sit to be able to get to a peaceful, clear, beautiful state. In fact, it becomes harder and harder to forget it, even when uh, things are difficult or even when you get caught in bad habits again because of certain external conditions of your life or triggering a lot of the old tendencies. But still the mind, it's hard to forget. It's like when the mind sees something clearly, it's hard to forget that that's true. And so even though one might experience a lot of negative habit energy, the mind remembers or knows that that habit energy is on the surface. It's not who I am, it's how this mind is conditioned, so that when things are like this, this is what comes out. And it's almost as if the mind continues to recognize or intuit the sense of stillness or peace, calm, clarity, or love behind. So it's really, it's important to uh, learn to trust your experience so that at the end of each set, you're kind of checking in. And even if it's incremental, and you're just getting a sense of having sat, even if what you sat through was a lot of physical discomfort, or a lot of restlessness, or a lot of sleepiness, to whatever degree your mind didn't take that opportunity to react, which is like shaking up the sediment, but just let it be. Whether you use the particular anchor, like the mindfulness of breathing to come back to, to stabilize the attention as a training ground to practice being intimate and leaving things alone, or whether you just worked with the distractions directly, well, that's just that, that's just that. But one way or another, remember, coming into the beautiful mind, the beautiful heart, the peaceful nature of the mind, is about what the mind doesn't do. It's not about doing something to get there. It's about ceasing doing something, and then what's always there, but subtle, but obscured, is no longer so subtle, because the mind's subtle, the, the attention is more refined, and there are fewer obscurations. So what's always there starts to shine through that sense of space, silence, peace, stillness, quiet. There it is. And then we always wonder, 
You know, it's like we say to our lover, I'll never forget you. And then we forget them, you know. We get obsessed about this or that. And, oh, I was supposed to call. (laughs) I was supposed to meet you. Or I I promised you I would do this. So life sweeps us away. So what we want to do is cultivate a relationship with that peace so deep, so resilient that we can't forget it. No matter how crazy our life becomes, we end up in a war zone or we're on our deathbed or you know something terrible has happened, but we don't forget it even then, even when it's the worst set of circumstances, we don't forget it. Because otherwise we really get thrown around by life. If we lose this tether to the inner peace of the mind, we really get thrown. Then our mind is dependent on what's showing up externally, whether people like me. And as soon as people stop liking me, it's like hell. It's literally hell. Because we have nothing else that we're orienting around. We're just orienting around our externals. We have good health, we feel great, and then we lose it. And we feel really betrayed because we didn't think that would happen to us, that we'd get old or we'd get sick. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice uh, to have a little bit more time for people to ask questions specifically about your practice. And also just, it might be nice for us to dig in about people's experiences of mistrusting peace mistrusting equanimity, which is what we'll be talking about next week, that calm. It's like uh, part of being addicted to anything is we're addicted to the poison itself. So in this case, in terms of spiritual sense, we're addicted to agitation. It's the great irony, paradox, you know, that what is actually painful, agitation is painful, we're addicted to. And we're suspicious of calm and peace and stillness. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to hear from folks. Feel free to ask any questions about what I've said or share your own experience with concentration or meditation generally. So what comes to mind? Something else is like, well, what's the difference? And then it's kind of weird. What am I making up? And then why does that even matter? Yeah. Did people hear the comment? So sitting and starting to experience some deep calm, and uh, then the mind, the thinking mind says, am I just making this up? And then the thinking mind, does it even matter? And you can see where that goes. So then there's just sort of more and more thinking about it. And what happens is, uh, this is the, the very nature of our thinking mind, is that remember the thinking mind isn't you or me. It seems that way, I know. So I'm not totally get that the thinking mind seems like it's you or me. 
that the thinking mind is just a natural process of the mind, and it's it's got a head of steam, doesn't? So, and and it's gotten <clears throat> involved with uh, this sense of survival, like I feel existentially threatened if I can't think to myself what's going on, if I can't in a cognitive way, conceptual way, explain to myself what's going on, right? So this is like, uh, in the same way, you know, we want a safe place to sleep tonight where it's warm and away from enemies. It's like that same thing with conceptual meaning. I need to know what's going on. I need to know who I am in relationship to you, what I value, what I don't care about. I need to have this all explained to me cognitively or I feel uneasy. So here you are having an experience, settling in, more tranquil, more peaceful, and then that part of the mind, that natural part of the mind that isn't us or anybody, it's just the natural part of the mind, it has some momentum, it has a function, I mean thinking has a function, it's just way over the top. So it just does what it's now in the habit to do. I need to know what this is. Now, is this real or not? Right? And it doesn't feel real to the thinking mind because I'm not doing this, right? See, it recognizes that, which is correct. It's not doing it. It's an act, the settling is also a natural process that's distinct from the natural process of thinking, right? So, of course, the thinking is going to go, I didn't make this happen. What is this? Is this real? You know? And so the key there is to recognize that the thinking is just thinking. And you don't need to be for it or against it. What you want to do is do what you did that allowed that settling into the peace. So you just go back to the causes. What were the causes that initially triggered the mind experiencing more tranquility and peace? So you just got to keep going back to those causes. Thinking about whether it's real or not was not the cause for the peace, right? And this is true not just about meditation, but anything in life. You want good things to happen, like making a lot of money, having a lot of friends, having big muscles, looking beautiful. Well, whatever got you any of those results in the past, do more of that. Right? Really carefully, honestly analyze causes and conditions. So when we do have a natural experience of being more peaceful, and now it's gone, we've blown it, because we you know, get in a dynamic like you described. Then later, in hindsight, we can say, because this is where memory is quite useful. Okay, blow by blow, what was the mind doing before that? You can trace back. What was the mind doing? Was it worrying? Was it planning? What was the mind doing? And you can ask yourself, do you remember now? I don't want to put you on the spot, but... What was it doing before? Before you settled in, yeah. To settle in? Mm-hmm. I think I was focusing on my breath. Uh-huh. And any more to say about how you were focusing on your breath? I was just uh, feeling it fill my stomach and up my body and I don't know what else. I was actually... Every worry that came in, I pictured... Um, I pictured it coming into me and then me holding it like a, like a child. 
Mm-hmm. Very good. So, so it might sound silly when someone says something like that, but you have to understand how profound that is because we need a lot of creativity here. The normal response to thoughts coming in when we're, we're doing that practice is to say, hey, don't bother me. I'm trying to meditate, which is agitating. You know, it's sort of a, an aversive response. So somehow you figure it out creatively that in order to undercut the aversion, which is shaking up the sediment, I'm going to embrace whatever shows up, right? Because it's that quality in the mind, embracing, is a settling quality. It's an inclusive quality. It's not an exclusive, tight quality. And it's very supportive of the settling. So in this way, awareness and love, they work together. You can't really deepen your mindfulness awareness practice without learning something about real kindness or real love, real compassion. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing. It's very useful for all of us to hear. Other thoughts that come to mind about your practice, questions? Yeah, Brian. Um, so, like, in this settling of, um, and I kind of call it landing, so when I land as deep as I think I can, <coughs> um, then there's kind of a threshold for me, and, you, and it was interesting that you used this word twice, because I'm kind of trying to understand this better, is that there becomes a very um, subtle intimacy that happens between my animated self during my life, and then when I've really settled into my practice. And it's that threshold through that kind of mirroring and seeing that intimacy in that moment kind of freaks me out just a little bit because I'm not used to it. So, like, to get through that threshold, I was kind of listening to what you are saying to her. Yeah. So to, like, you know, I can take a little step and then the bells and whistles go off. It's like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to get here. You know, so, but I'm assuming that in, when I get through that threshold, I'll experience something very different than I, you know, in my mind, where it's like I'm trying to figure out what is it that I'm going to experience. Yeah. So when I get there, it kind of feels like a little bit of a wall. How do I get through that? Experience? Yeah. And this is true for all of us, Brian, and not just one place, but in many places. Basically, each time the practice settles a little deeper, we have a similar experiences, I think I understand your description, what your description is about. And it's, it's like we get to a new place and it's like I mentioned earlier, it's going to trigger the thinking mind that wants meaning, wants to understand, wants safety on this conceptual level. And how do we go beyond that? And it's going to be some, either it will be accidental, you know, which happens where we just sort of step into a new place. And it's too late to sort of be afraid of stepping into that new place. Um, But generally, we have what you described, which is, and it can go on for quite a while, where we're sort of there at the edge, at a boundary, but we don't know how to walk through, or we don't know know how to fall through it. And it can take a while. And uh, it's it's some kind of trust, or it's some kind of wisdom that will discern the fear and realize the fear is impersonal. Don't need to trust it, don't need to identify with the fear. But somehow, in an unconscious way, the mind is creating that boundary, and when the mind sees that it's created that boundary, it will go through it. Now, the way this woman described, um, 
is one of the best ways, really, which is to somehow, um, if the mind has already built into it some trust of love, then if you can bring that to mind, that I don't like to be honest with you, I don't know what this is, and I'm a little, you know, I'm a little tight, but I trust love. I trust, like, love is safe. Caring about this moment, caring about this feeling, I don't need to mistrust that. So that's what I'll do. I won't try to push through. See, a lot of times what keeps us stuck for a long time, a very subtle, I mean, if it's obvious, it's obvious, but often it's very subtle wanting to break through. But see, it's like the ego wants to go where it can't go. The ego is an agitated state of mind. You know, me doing something is an agitated state of mind. And the calming, the quieting process is when the ego doesn't feel like it has to do anything. It's just in hibernation. It's not gone. It's just not an active activity in the mind. And so that's what allows things to settle. So whenever the mind wants to make progress, that's an ego-based stance. And it won't make progress. So we have to look at that and we have to say, you know, uh, wanting to get ahead is the not the cause for getting ahead. Relaxation is, trust is, love is, curiosity in a really natural way, not I mean, a, a real sort of uh, playful curiosity is, but not wanting. Because what wanting is, it's generally like, my life is heavy and I need some relief. It's sort of coming from that attitude. And uh, that may be true, you know, that I want some relief. But that doesn't lead to relief. It leads to worry and ambition and trying to make things happen and being disappointed when it doesn't. All of which is shaking up the sediment again, you know, which confuses the mind. It takes the mind off in tangents that don't really lead anywhere useful. You know, I think I read a couple of weeks ago that the proximate cause for concentration is pleasantness. Pleasantness. Now, you have to find a way to find or connect with pleasantness. That's why the community spent a lot of times, this was a very greasy 1950s diner when we bought it in 2006. And it took us two years and a lot of all of your money to not just purchase it, but to renovate this place. And we tried to make it really pleasant, the building, you know, as much as we could afford. So that, because it's pleasing, we feel safer, you know, and the mind is more at ease. So you can think about that too in terms of how you set up your sit at home when you're not able to come. You know, find a nice place in your apartment or your home. Put a chair there or a cushion there. Have some flowers or looking out a nice window or some objects. Either declutter the area at least or have some beautiful things that are calming that the mind finds pleasing. And maybe take a bath before, shower before, do a little mindful stretching, 
Make sure you're not too full or too hungry, too hyped up on caffeine or too sleepy. So you're really finding the ideal time because you want to tune in. And then other times during the day, not during your formal meditation, but when you see something pleasant, contemplate the pleasantness of it. You see a little kid playing with a dog. But take a few seconds and connect with the pleasantness and notice how the mind settles. You see a beautiful sky. <coughs> Being out at the, in the country, I was talking to Tom, who was on retreat at the retreat property a few days ago, about the, all the crows out there and other birds. And uh, it's just so amazing when, you know, and last night we had a, the guy who plows the, the driveway came later in the evening. So we all had to go out and move our cars out of the driveway so he could plow it. And that meant we got to see all the stars. And it's just like the whole mind gets quiet because it's, it's amazed. When the mind is seeing something amazing or beautiful, you don't have to try to be calm or try to be peaceful. The mind just gets peaceful. So these are just some tricks that we want to take, or these times we want to take advantage of so that we can learn, like, what is that dynamic of the mind settling down, quieting down? So it's not just some weird Buddhist abstraction that we read about, but it's a dynamic we see actually in our own heart and mind, and we're really getting good at kind of reading it, understanding, and knowing how to participate or to support that, however much we can at this moment. You know, at some moments, we'll settle a lot. In some moments, we'll go from being really crazy to slightly less crazy. But all of that is good. You have any movement in the direction of ease and calm and stability of mind and clarity of mind is good. There, we should never have the thought, I'm so crazy, it doesn't make sense to try to do anything about it. No. <laughs> it always makes sense. It's just a matter of like, what might actually be skillful in this moment. How to take one step in the direction of steadiness, calm, clarity, peace. Because we're just so much more functional as a human being when we're in that place than when we go in the other place. We need to leave it here. It's nine o'clock. Let's just take a few seconds. As much as the mind, the heart can, we'll let things settle. Appreciate the silence for a few seconds. Embracing the experience of the body and mind. Yes, this is how it is now. And thanks everyone for coming tonight. Always nice to be together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.